This is The Guardian. Today, for years, fans, football authorities and the UK government ignored Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich's Kremlin links and the source of his wealth. Now, the war in Ukraine has changed everything. Last week, on Chelsea Football Club's 117th birthday, a dramatic announcement plunged the club and its owner into crisis. The Chelsea owner, Roman Abramovich, has become the latest Russian oligarch to have his assets frozen by the UK government as part of sanctions over the war in Ukraine. As Russia continues its brutal war in Ukraine, President Putin's allies and those with links to the Kremlin, who have profited from the power of his regime, have had their assets frozen and seized. It was actually stunning when the news came through. For The Guardian's David Conn, an investigative reporter who has followed the career of Roman Abramovich ever since he touched down in the UK 19 years ago, the news was a shock, but also too long in the making. It was like the emperor's new clothes. It was like the government had just punched through to what we've all really known all these years, but haven't quite ever been able to communicate. So after years of knowing how Abramovich made his money, after seeing how well documented it was that he had good relations with Putin, even though his representatives, that's something that they always really try to downplay. It was just a remarkable moment of recognition. For Roman Abramovich, it is a sudden fall from grace. For Chelsea, the road ahead is far less clear. For now, the club are banned from selling any further tickets to their games and a strictly limited matchday budget means players are travelling by bus and not by chartered planes. Amid the growing global horror at the war in Ukraine, a section of the Chelsea fan base has continued to sing Abramovich's name in recent weeks. But for fans we caught up with outside the stadium on Sunday, the news was still sinking in. Abramovich should be sanctioned, but I think that having this impact on the rest of the club uh, is really bad. He, he has been good for our football club, though. But obviously the politics of it all now has become a problem. At the end of the day, it's not him who's gone to war. Russia's gone to war, not Abramovich himself. Saudi Arabia put 81 people to death yesterday, and yet we're the sanctioned ones. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't be. Everyone should be sanctioned. But this is the problem, is that now the cat's out the bag, and they obviously have to get rid of everyone. But I don't know what the answer is, because these football clubs have been allowed to get too big that only sort of evil regimes can afford to buy them. Earlier this week, Abramovich was pictured in the VIP lounge at Tel Aviv Airport as his private jet headed for Turkey and then on to Moscow. Yesterday, the EU joined Britain and Australia in adding him to their list of sanctioned individuals. From The Guardian, I'm Noshin Iqbal. Today in Focus, a moment of reckoning, how the UK turned on Roman Abramovich. 
David Kahn, we're all familiar with the image of Abramovich as this quiet, enigmatic, silver-haired, mysterious man who occasionally pops up on the football terraces. But where does his story start? And what do we know about his beginnings? Well, Abramovich was born and grew up in Russia when it was a communist state. It's been reported that both his parents died when he was very young, that he was in the army for a short time, and that he'd had a period doing different jobs, which included having a business that made plastic ducks. But by the time the story really starts of his journey to become an oligarch, he was working as an oil trader and was making a moderate amount of money. So this is after communism fell and there were opportunities for people to make money. So how did he make his fortune? How did he become a billionaire? The story of how Abramovich became a billionaire is it's the story of the creation of the oligarchs, which is a tragic history, really, for Russia that should be so much better known than it is. What happened was, under President Boris Yeltsin, instead of Russia, after communism, having a kind of orderly transition to becoming a social democracy with a functioning market economy, there were these insider deals that were the result of political influence over Yeltsin. And huge state resources were handed over at an absolutely cut price to a very, very small group of individuals. And Abramovich and his then partner, Boris Berezovsky, with whom he later fell out, were two of that tiny group that became billionaires and were called the original oligarchs. And the deals that made Abramovich a billionaire the owner of Sibneft, a huge Russian oil company, were actually all set out in a judgment in a British high court case in 2012 after Abramovich and Berezovsky had fallen out. And the case recorded that Berezovsky had lobbied Yeltsin and said that if Yeltsin formed this huge oil company and it was then transferred to Abramovich's management. Some of the revenues would be used by Berezovsky to fund a TV station that would give Boris Yeltsin propaganda and good publicity. And it was Abramovich's own case at the trial that the deals that he made with Berezovsky were corrupt and that the political lobbying that Berezovsky did on Yeltsin was also corrupt. Meanwhile, the vast majority of the Russian population were left impoverished and living in a very, very chaotic country where there was no rule of law and no real functioning economy. It's a very, very important part of Russia's tragedy that this tiny group of oligarchs was created and the wealth was so disastrously, unequally distributed in Russia. And it's actually been painful to see Abramovich celebrated and garlanded in this country through football when you know that story. Clearly, there was a lot of social and political upheaval in 1990s Russia. As you say, it was emerging from decades of communism. And then there was this transition of power from President Yeltsin to President Putin in 2000. How did Roman Abramovich navigate all that? What is really clear is that you had to stay on side with Putin. 
During the campaign, Vladimir Putin said something to the effect that after the elections there will be no more oligarchs, uh, to which I believe Mr. Berezovsky replied, Putin cannot decide there will be no more oligarchs in Russia. If anything, their role will increase. A few of the oligarchs, including Abramovich's previous partner, Berezovsky, didn't stay on side with him. And they came to a really bad fate. And Berezovsky fled to this country in fear of his life. And the inquest on Berezovsky's death was an open verdict. Um, it's not clear how he died still. Abramovich never did make missteps with Putin. He stayed on side with him. And there's all sorts of stories about how close he is to Putin, which his representatives always try to downplay, because obviously it's a terrible look. Despite that access to power and all that wealth, the first that most of us ever hear of Roman Abramovich is when news of this extremely rich 36-year-old Russian buys up Chelsea Football Club in 2003. The 2nd of July was the exact date we found out a Russian man called Roman Abramovich had taken over Chelsea Football Club. How does that happen? Well, quite simply, Chelsea was owned by a long-time, quite stereotypical football club chairman owner called Ken Bates, who'd been around football for a long time. They'd been struggling to thrive in the modern big money era of the Premier League. And Abramovich bought the club from Ken Bates for a reported £140 million. And there he was, this billionaire from Russia, of whom we knew sadly little at the time, arriving in London to take over Chelsea. Chelsea is a really well-established club that has spent most of its time in the top division and has always had a bit of an air of glamour about it being the West London club and having a period particularly in the 70s where it had some skillful and glamorous players and it was in the Premier League at the time and under the previous owner Ken Bates he had tried to get it succeeding in the Premier League era but it was all becoming very burdensome. And certainly Chelsea weren't challenging to win the Premier League and they were also starting to have big financial challenges when Ken Bates then cast around for a buyer. I do remember reading quite often at the time that Abramovich had acquired his wealth through questionable means. Yeah, I think people were raising concerns and um, people were writing about it. And I, automatically the media asks, who is this guy? And we do our research. And it was all very, very well documented and there's never been any mystery about it. It's been in plain sight for 19 years. But given that information was in the public domain, how is he received in London and in the elite social circles that you might rightly presume he moved in? I think he had his own very tight social circle in London, which were mainly some people that had been with him all the way through from before he became an oligarch when he was working as an oil trader, the loyal people who he trusted and who stayed with him through his rise and he was also surrounded by a lot of security. And then he had an awful lot of people who worked for him. But I suppose it was a mixed reception. And so how did Abramovich transform Chelsea Football Club? 
it's actually really important to understand that what Abramovich did, which is bring this absolute pile of money and immediately start to spend it really lavishly on new star players and the star coach that he wanted, which was Jose Mourinho, who just won the Champions League with with the Portuguese club Porto, was really unprecedented in English football. So Abramovich almost created that, and now we've got used to it. And it was had a feel of unlimited spending, and it was just, that's it, that's how we do it. We're just going to buy players now, and we're going to transform Chelsea to win the Premier League. Chelsea have got two on two here. This could be the title. Fred Lampard to win it. He's got it. 2-0. No way back the ball. They've won the European Champions League twice, including last season during the pandemic. Chelsea have won the Champions League. Nine years after the first one, the famous old trophy is heading back to West London. Blue is the colour in Porto tonight. And Chelsea are on top of the world. When Abramovich was on the pitch with the trophy being broadcast around the world with his hands on football's greatest club prize, the European Champions League. And even less than a month ago, they won the Club World Cup. Chelsea are the Club World Cup champions. A dramatic final. Chelsea 2, Palmares 1. And again, he was on the pitch with the trophy and we've got photographs of it. David, clearly buying Chelsea gave Abramovich a way to insert himself in the heart of London life, perhaps launder his image somewhat, as well as it allowing him to indulge a hobby that he seemed to enjoy. But even to the casual observer or the casual football fan, and I count myself as one of those because I used to be obsessed but then just sort of fell out of love with it, it is no understatement to suggest that Abramovich completely changed the game. But can you tell me exactly how? Most of the clubs in the Premier League are now owned by billionaires from overseas and the clubs are coveted by very, very wealthy people. But Abramovich was really the start of that. And also that culture that he brought of just spending money from the owner on players, that was also alien, really. That, yes, the owners always used to have to put some finance in Uh, A lot of them didn't, actually. A lot of them didn't put anything in, and the clubs just ran on their revenues on what they could earn. So the culture, which, again, we've got very, very used to, of a billionaire putting his own money in to bankroll the wages of players, yeah, that was transformational and not in a very good way. And it created a kind of arms race of every club needing to look for a buyer who might put tons of money in because otherwise how are you going to compete with Chelsea? Fans were celebrating at St James's Park today on hearing their clubs been bought by a consortium led by a Saudi Arabian sovereign wealth fund. And all football fans came to realise that for all that they love their clubs and their clubs are woven into their, their affections and loyalties the actual competition is about who's got the most money. 
So we've seen how his money has transformed not only Chelsea, but the top level of English football. And while Chelsea are successful, other clubs with their own billionaire owners are winning more and more of the big trophies. But then there is a turning point in 2018 with a chemical weapon attack on a former Russian intelligence officer and his daughter in the town of Salisbury. Relations between Russia and the UK really deteriorate. It is now clear that Mr Skripal and his daughter were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent of a type developed by Russia. And not only does Britain expel dozens of Russian diplomats, but there is a renewed interest in Russian money and its influence in the UK. What effect did all of this have on Roman Abramovich? At the time, the story was that Abramovich withdrew his visa application to the UK that it was never actually refused. But from a document that Chris Bryant read out in the Commons just a few weeks ago, that in 2019, Abramovich was essentially an undesirable presence because of his links to Putin and because, as they put it in this document, of his association with corrupt practices. I've got hold of a uh, leaked uh document from 2019 from the Home Office which says in relation to Mr Abramovich as part of HMG's Russia strategy aimed at targeting illicit finance and malign activity Abramovich remains of interest to HMG due to his links to the Russian state and his public association with corrupt activity and practices an example of this is Abramovich admitting in court proceedings that he paid for political influence Therefore, HMG is focused on ensuring individuals linked to illicit finance and malign activity are unable to base themselves in the UK and will use the relevant tools at its disposal, including immigration powers, to prevent this. They clearly had been wanting to make it difficult for him to base himself in the UK, and the document pretty much said that. And Abramovich withdrew his application and flounced off a bit And at the time, there were well-advanced plans to build a brand-spanking new stadium for Chelsea in London, and he cancelled it. And he's almost never been back to a Chelsea game and, and even to London again since. And he actually became an Israeli citizen because he's Jewish, and I think he automatically got Israeli citizenship. So at that point, he was considered undesirable, but not enough to have full sanctions brought against him. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point as well. Like when Chris Bryant read that, read out that document, you, that was confirmation of what we'd all been asking at the time, which is the government really, really was making things difficult for him in terms of a visa. But if that was the case, that they believed that his closeness to Putin and his association with corrupt practices made him so undesirable, why on earth did that have no impact on his ownership of Chelsea? And I mean, Chelsea won the Premier League, the Champions League and the Club World Cup after that under Abramovich's ownership and spent God knows how much money. So even after 2019, when you understand that, you're still left with this thought that it took an actual war by Putin for the chickens to come home to roost on Abramovich. Coming up, how the war in Ukraine changed everything for Roman Abramovich. 
Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own US politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there every Friday. Well, David, three weeks ago, Russian tanks rolled into Ukraine and everything changed. It quickly became clear that the UK was planning to join the US and Europe with a huge package of economic sanctions against Russia. What did Abramovich do then? It was an amazing turnaround. And within days, Abramovich was talking about handing over what he called the care and stewardship of the club to Chelsea's foundation, which is a charity that does the kind of social programmes and good works in the name of Chelsea. A statement released by Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich in the last hour. During my nearly 20-year ownership of Chelsea FC, I have always viewed my role as a custodian of the club, whose job it is ensuring that we are as successful as we can be today, as well as build for the future, while also playing a positive role in our communities. I've always taken... And it turned out that the trustees of that charity were all good people with good reputations don't seem to have been consulted at all in advance, then saying he was going to sell it. Uh, He also, there seemed to be reports of him moving some of his assets, including his jet and his yacht, as other oligarchs were doing and trying to sail them to safer waters. And meanwhile, Ukrainian officials reached out to Abramovich to potentially act as a mediator between them and President Putin. What happened? Yeah, this was a really weird Development that came out in the early days of the invasion. And it was quite strange because it sort of went against what Abramovich's people have always tried to say, which is that he's not really close to Putin. (laughs) But then it came out that he'd been asked to try to mediate how much he was doing, what he was doing, who he was trying to talk to. We don't really know. I think we can see tragically that nothing that he may have done has had any influence on stopping the war or helping with peace from Russia's side towards Ukraine. I don't think there's been any condemnation of the invasion, certainly not of Putin. And people criticised him for that. But I could really understand it because he spent all this time with his billions not falling out with Putin. And for an oligarch, or to be honest, anyone, coming out to criticise Putin, that's it. You've fallen out of favour. And that's what his former partner, Berezovsky, did. Abramovich's daughter did post uh, a message on social media which was critical of Putin, but I, I don't know how much can be read into that. What reason did the UK government give for sanctioning Abramovich? The main reason that they gave that was set out in their statement was very close links to Vladimir Putin. And they said that they'd had a close relationship for decades. There was also the activities of Abramovich's companies, which the sanction statement said had had tax breaks and preferential treatment from Putin 
and the Russian government, and that one of his companies had been providing services, potentially including supplying steel to the Russian military, which could have been used in the production of tanks. How effective do you think the government's plans are? And what is the ultimate aim here beyond freezing the assets of a billionaire? What tangible impact will it have on him? It's huge. This is concrete action against the favoured people around Putin, against the few very, very wealthy oligarchs of Russia. And obviously it means that all his assets are frozen in this country, including at Chelsea. And they did put on the restrictions that you would normally put on a business where the assets are frozen, that they can't have money coming in and they can't sell new tickets, they can't sell merchandising. It really is wrapping Chelsea up in a straitjacket. It's really strong and I think it's devastating for Abramovich. So that's Chelsea. But what about the effects these sanctions are having on him personally and his luxurious lifestyle? We've all seen in recent days the yachts, the planes, the mansions... Well, I think in his day-to-day life, all the worries that he's going to have are probably going to be on the deck of a yacht. But at the same time, if you operate in his world, owning Chelsea has been this huge projection and project for him. His reputation and having a reputation as this billionaire benefactor rather than as an oligarch close to Putin. That's been really, really carefully manicured over the years. So his world has crumbled and it's very significant how much, how many of his assets have been frozen, even if obviously he's still not short of a few rubles. We've got just over two months left of the Premier League. What happens to Chelsea now? Well, It was interesting after the sanctions announcement was made. The Premier League was obviously getting their heads together to think, what on earth does this all mean? And also, what do we need to say? And they finally made a statement. It was a few hours later. And the statement comes up and I thought, right, the Premier League has finally worked out what on earth they're going to say about one of their most high-profile clubs. Owner has been sanctioned for closeness to Vladimir Putin in the middle of this terrible war. And what they said was, we can confirm that the game against Norwich is still going ahead. So I think everybody's in football is hoping that the government restrictions will more or less allow Chelsea to finish the season. And in a way, that's really a sad reflection on the game, on football, I mean, that that's all that anyone's really said. You know, with this awful spectacle that we've got and whether they'll find a way for the government to allow it to be sold or to change ownership if the money doesn't go to Abramovich, they probably will. The US bank tasked with the handling of the sale of Chelsea Football Club has given potential buyers until Friday to get their bids in. But what happens to that money if the government's sanctions mean Abramovich himself can't profit from this? That's a really good question. I don't actually know the answer to that. And I think there's another question about the loans that he's put in. So over the years, he's put a billion and a half into Chelsea to basically pay for the success that they've had. If that money is repaid to him, that's a breach of the sanctions. But if the money is not repaid to Abramovich, then that means that Chelsea have still hugely benefited 
from the ownership of an individual who is now finally regarded as so toxic that he's subject to sanctions. So if the one and a half billion stays in, that's a very, very uncomfortable spectacle, I think, for English football and the Premier League. When Abramovich took over Chelsea, there was no real test for owners to be fit and proper. But will the next owner be subjected to much closer scrutiny to stop this happening again? Well, it's true that there weren't any ownership rules when Abramovich took over in 2003 and they came in in 2004. But the actual rules were brought in and the background to the rules was to stop small-time crooks taking over small, lower-division football clubs. And they're just not equipped for the modern era of the Premier League when clubs are coveted as investments and global projection vehicles for all manner of money men, for regimes. So we've got a member of the ruling family of Abu Dhabi owns Manchester City, who are the current all-conquering Premier League champions. We've obviously had the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Saudi Arabia just take over Newcastle. So that answers your question. Yes, there are rules now, but clearly the rules haven't stopped the Saudis taking over Newcastle. And I looked at the rules just an hour or two after Abramovich was sanctioned. And it's still all about whether you have a recent conviction for a criminal offence involving dishonesty and whether you've been bankrupt. And it's like because those kinds of people who were like a small-time fraudster were hovering about lower division clubs, but a much, much more considered approach has always been needed for the ownership of Premier League clubs, but the Premier League has always resisted that. And to be honest, they've always been very, very welcoming of money coming into the game. And the biggest check that there really is, is have you got the money? That's the biggest check on an owner and a director, not not what kind of person are you? And they've taken the view that its investment, including by Abramovich, including by Abu Dhabi, now by Newcastle, that has made or helped to make the Premier League the preeminent football club competition in the world. David, as a final thought, from everything that you've said, Abramovich's world is crumbling. This is going to have a huge tangible impact on his life and his reputation. The UK government clearly thinks that he has levers of influence to deploy with Putin. But from everything you know about him, do you think that this decision by the UK government will have any bearing on Putin and the war in Ukraine? I don't know. Obviously, the US, the EU and Britain obviously think it's very, very important to have a whole array of economic sanctions against Russia, particularly given the fact that it doesn't look like we we can militarily intervene. They obviously don't think it's a waste of time to sanction the oligarchs, to freeze their assets, to attack Russia's economy. And so I assume that actually these things are impactful. And you also read that the oligarchs will be telling Putin that he's being too reckless and he's going too far and he's destroying 
so much of what Russia had as wealth and influence in the world. So I wouldn't at all like to say that it's futile, but obviously, tragically, it's not saving any lives in Ukraine just yet. David, thank you so much. Thank you. That was David Conn. You can follow his reporting on this story and more at theguardian.com. David's book, The Fall of the House of FIFA, is also available in all good bookshops. The Guardian has approached representatives of Roman Abramovich for comment on this story, but they have declined to do so at the time of recording. And finally today, we want to know what you think of Guardian podcasts. To take part in a survey of our listeners, please go to www.guardiansurveys.com forward slash podcast or follow the link from our podcast page. This episode was produced by Ruth Abrahams with Lucy Hoff and Courtney Youssef. Additional research by Veronica Streshinska. Sound design is by Rudy Zagadlo. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Mythley Rao. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.